If you want to take out your Bible and open to Acts chapter 25, we are really coming to the end of our series through the book of Acts, the rise of the Christian church. I think we've been in this like 10 months now. Um, I didn't count before the service, but uh, it's, it's been a while. So I'm going to start by asking you a question, and, and this is rhetorical. I would encourage you not to answer aloud or with signing by your hand, okay? And have you ever been to court? Probably you've been at one time or another, at least as a juror, right? Maybe you had jury duty, and I'm going to knock on wood here because it's been a while and I'm about due. Uh, maybe you were called as a witness for something. Maybe you had to go through some custody issues. I wonder if any of you ever had to be the defendant. Um, I did once. Pastor Eric went to court. Uh, I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was 17. And it was over a bit of a traffic incident. So I thought I would tell you my story this morning. Uh, this was when I was in high school as a senior. And I had just finished playing a basketball game. And I had one of my better games of the season. Scored a bunch. Had a few turnovers. I was the point guard. And I was excited to get home and just be celebrated and fussed over and enjoy this, this good win with my family. And my buddy Jason said, hey, Eric, can you give me a ride home? And I was like, oh, sure. You know, get in the car, come on. And so we were buzzing home a little faster than, well, I say we, he wouldn't really have any choice in the matter, but um, I revved up my little 1980 blue Toyota pickup truck to about 62 miles an hour. And then I got the flashing, boo, you know, in my mirror. And I don't know if any of you have ever been pulled over at night, like a place where it gets dark kind of night, right? But it's a bad experience because obviously the lights on the car are going around and around and, you know, you're being focused upon. And then you've got the, the beams from the headlights and then you've got this other bright spotlight beam going on the car too. And they bounce off of all your mirrors and come right back into your face. So you're sitting there being, some of you are nodding knowingly, so that's fun to see. You're sitting there feeling already conspicuous. I've been pulled over. Everybody knows. They see me. They're driving by. You know, hey, Eric, oh, you know. And all these lights are coming back in your face. And so the officer comes uh, to the window and says, uh, where are you coming from, young man? And I said, oh, uh, officer, I just finished playing a basketball game. I play for Apple Valley Christian School. <laughs> Heavy on the Christian well, where are you going in such a hurry? Uh, I'm, I'm headed home to, not to a party, I'm headed home to celebrate uh, our win with my family, my Christian family, right? <laughs> he says, well, Eric, you were going 62 and a 45. Yeah, I, I had it going. And then he said, uh, but since you were heading into a 55 mile an hour zone, I'm going to cut you a break and write you up for 62 and a 55. That's only seven over. That's better. Have a good night celebrating with your Christian family. <laughs> Thanks. So I drop Jason off, and I go back to my house. My mood has totally changed. I was supposed to come home and be celebrated, and instead I'm walking into my dad's study with this piece of yellow paper. It says right on the top, citation. I don't even like that word. And I didn't say anything. I just set it on the desk in front of him. 
And he looked at it, and I thought, this, this is it. This is how Eric dies, right here. <laughs> and he didn't say much, and he said, all right, good to know. Thanks. And I thought, well, that was pretty cool. Um, probably if he had seen 62 and a 45, it might have been a different story. And I don't know that I've ever told my dad that part, actually. <laughs> but here's the thing. In the state of California, if you get a traffic citation and you're under the age of 18, you have to go to court. You have to go to court. And so I am a 17-year-old Christian school kid. I'm ASB president. I lead worship at chapels. And I have a court date. And that felt weird. And my court date was set for a Friday, which happened to be chapel day. And in our school, chapel days, the boys had to wear a shirt and tie. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just add a suit coat to it for that day. And I'm ready to argue my case in court. <laughs> so if you stick with me through the whole sermon here, you can hear how that turned out. Just so you know. The Apostle Paul is ready for his day in court. He's been waiting two years. Two years. And, and more than that, uh, he's not even waiting necessarily for trial, but he's just simply awaiting a verdict. So let me do a little recap in case you haven't been with us to kind of figure out where we're at here. Um, originally, there was sort of this kerfuffle that broke out between Paul and Jews outside of the temple. They had some misinformation about him. They misunderstood what he was teaching. They thought he had brought somebody into the wrong place of the temple. And they were angry, raging mad, and ready to kill. And this disturbance got rowdy enough that the Roman officials got involved and arrested him pretty much for his own safety and got him out of there. Then they basically get a little clarification on who Paul really is. For a moment, they thought he actually was the ringleader of a group of terrorists. Then they realize who he is, okay? And just before they give, or as they give the order to beat him, to beat a confession out of him, he lets them know, I'm a Roman citizen. He has rights. So uh, a court of religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin is assembled together. This is made up largely of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who did not agree on theological matters. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and so this group gets together. Paul, seeing that there's no way I can get justice from this group, basically baits them into a fight. And he throws out this idea of his belief in the resurrection. They begin fighting among themselves, and finally his court gets tossed to a different venue. So Paul's going to make the journey up to Caesarea, where he will be tried before the Roman governor Felix. On the way, they try to kill him, and he averts that. Once he arrives, and Pastor Adam showed us this last week, kind of a, this mockery of a trial unfolds, and this attorney is brought in named Tertullus. Remember this guy? How many of you have seen the B movie? This is a raise your hands thing. B movie? Do you remember the attorney in there? I think it's played by John Goodman or voiced by John Goodman. That's who I thought of as I was listening to Pastor Adam talk about this court case. That's who, who Tertullus reminded me of. He's this caricature of an attorney. And this case basically became a shakedown. There's no evidence for the trumped-up charges. And Paul basically drills down to what is actually the heart of the matter. In chapter 24, verse 21, he says, It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. That's why I'm here. Say what you will. Listen to what you will. 
This is the heart of the matter. That's why I'm here. In other words, I'm in a civil trial for what is actually a religious issue. But at the heart of this, this is all about the resurrection. So procedurally, Governor Felix really should just dismiss the case for lack of evidence and for it being sort of the wrong subject in the wrong case. They're seeking a capital crime for a religious dispute, not for a crime against the state. And so Paul is for two years basically paraded around in Acts 24 verse 26. It says, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. In verse 27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So what we see both from last week's sermon, something that was stated there, becomes more explicit in our passage today, that this is the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the matter. It's the heart of the matter for Paul's trial, and it's the heart of the matter for our personal salvation as well. So chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by the Jews are not true... That no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Well, it's kind of amazing here that after two years of just hanging out in arrest, the anger of the Jews has not quelled. Two years, you think they kind of would have forgotten some things or gotten distracted by something else but they're still raging mad and they still want him dead. They still hope to intercept him along the way and kill him. This thinking that perhaps this seam in leadership provides an opportunity for them to exploit. You can see how little confidence they must have in their charges against him when really the conspiracy is just kill him and rout. So one of the things we see here, our first point is this, Paul's case, it keeps getting kicked up to a higher court if you've noticed that trend. When you think about where all of it began, right? It started off as sort of a trial by mob at the temple, then an inquiry by the arresting officer who was named Lysias. 
Then this religious council, the Sanhedrin, is convened. Now it's gone before the Roman governor in Caesarea, first Felix, and now uh, his successor, Festus, and will be joined by King Agrippa. Eventually his case will get kicked all the way up to what we might as well call the Supreme Court. It will go to the emperor in Rome. And that is actually what Paul wants. Paul has long wanted to go to Rome that he might proclaim the gospel there. And we even saw a couple weeks ago that the Lord came to him and encouraged him and assured him that that would in fact happen. The Lord said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But one of the fundamental problems that's going on here, why this case keeps getting batted around, is that there is a fundamental legal problem between the relationship of the charges against him and the jurisdiction of where they're being tried. The Sanhedrin, for example, a religious council, uh, even if they agreed, they were a hung jury on Paul, but even if they agreed on the offense and thought it was a capital offense, they didn't have the right to execute him. They would have to turn that over to the Romans. Rome has the authority to execute but only for charges against the state, not for a religious dispute. And that's why we find charges oftentimes trumped up. We saw it with Jesus, remember this? Where they accused him of sedition. This man says he's king of the Jews. So they could convict him on something that would bring a capital offense. And they're doing the same thing to Paul here. They're trying to convict him on being, this guy is a rioter, he's a troublemaker. And if they can convict him on that, perhaps they can get the state to execute him. But as we're going to see, all of this works in Paul's favor. He wants to go to Rome, wants to preach the gospel. And God is sovereignly working behind the scenes here, even using immoral leaders, ambitious soldiers, injustice, and even false accusation to place his servant in Rome So the gospel will be furthered there. So these first 12 verses, the important thing is to understand, to help us see how Paul gets to Rome. And in effect, he's getting a raw deal, but he's being put in the right place by God himself. I appeal to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. So now that that's been decided, some formal charges have to be applied. And this is our next point here. And so this process that we enter into, it's kind of like an arraignment. I don't know how steeped you are in legal knowledge, but an arraignment, kind of a modern-day situation of arraignment, is where formal charges are brought, and you're to enter a plea. You know, for example, we charge you for driving a horrific car, a Chrysler, a bad choice altogether, right? How do you plea? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty, okay. That's kind of what an arraignment is, and this is effectively what's going on with Paul here. Um, And I think it should also be understood that there's more than just Paul is on trial here, but really Christianity as a whole. Up until now, Christianity has sort of been a grassroots, underground movement referred to as the way. Some thought it was a sect of Judaism or even a perversion of Judaism, but they hadn't recognized it as an official religion. And going to Rome was maybe an opportunity where that could happen. 
And so the historic development of the Christian church sort of coming out of Judaism or being what Judaism was always meant to be is sort of developed here around the central issue of the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what Acts is kind of chronicling for us. And now enter a new character, a fella, King Herod Agrippa II. And this, this is a young guy. He actually was about 16 or 17 when he came to power, and they didn't even trust him with the power that he had, so they gave him some little territories to manage as he kind of learned his craft. And so you might almost think of him as kind of this young prince with the official title king, and ultimately he's a puppet of Rome. So he emerges on the scene here, and if you know your New Testament, you should recognize King Herod Agrippa, when you hear that term Herod, you should think this is an ominous figure because the Herodian family and Christianity do not have, they're not simpatico. They do not have a good history. Remember this, great-grandfather Herod, Herod the Great, tried to kill the infant Jesus and did so by slaughtering all of the boys two years and under. Then we have his son, Herod Antipas, good guy, he beheaded John the Baptist and requested that Jesus come to him prior to Jesus' crucifixion, hoping to see some miraculous activity from him. Then we have his son, Herod Agrippa I, who has already had James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded as well. Now enter Herod Agrippa II, a young, insecure prince with something to prove. And he shows up on the scene at the arraignment of Paul. Verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, doesn't that just seem out of, that doesn't seem to fit, Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. And here, critical verse 19. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. So once again, we see what's really at the heart of the matter here. It's told to us explicitly. It's the resurrection of Christ. That's at the heart of the matter here. We saw that back in chapter 24. Our series is called The Rise of the Christian Church. And again, we're seeing the development of the Christian church sort of officially, as up until now, it's kind of been this organic underground movement. 
But now it's sort of coming into its own. It's, being, it's coming into the courts and being test, uh, tested there along with Paul. And so while Paul's on trial here, the fundamental issue is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, not only for Paul and for his trial, but also for the issue of the church as a whole. So verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 23, we've got a long passage here, so dig in. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, I like that word, and entered the audience room with high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he, should not, that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. You have appeared, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So here we get to our last point. Whew, I'm tired. I need a glass of milk after that one. Paul clarifies once again, the resurrection of Jesus is the matter. It's the central matter. It's the heart of all of this. Not just the central issue for his own personal trial. And not just for the recognition of the Christian church as something distinct from Judaism. But the resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of the matter for personal salvation for all and any who would believe. He lays it out. This has been God's plan all along. It's what Moses and the prophets spoke of, a Messiah, a Savior who would rescue God's people. It was prophesied that he would suffer and die as a sacrifice for our sin. And it was prophesied that he would rise from the dead. And so here comes the the fundamental thing. If Jesus raised from the dead, that it verifies that he is this Savior sent from heaven just as he claimed. Paul states it very succinctly in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. And so what we find, and and I've mentioned this before, sometimes I think uh, modern Christians... This is hard to say. We almost focus too much on the cross. And what I mean by that is we do it to the exclusion of the resurrection. We need both. Or to give you a mental picture, I'll say it this way. The twin blades of the cross and the resurrection are like the divine scissor by which God cuts sin out of our record with him. We need both. Either single blade is not enough. Let me go back to my uh, story that I started with. It's Friday. 
chapel day. So I have on my shirt and I have on my tie and the suit coat that I put on. And my mom uh, took me to court. Nothing like going to court with your mom. And I entered the court, um, solid, upstanding, young, athletic, Christian leader with a suit coat on and plenty of self-righteousness. And I'm thinking to myself, this will be great. I'll say a few words and surely this will go my way. And so my mom and I sat down in, in the courtroom and we sat in the back and uh, kind of waiting for the judge to get to my case. And I remember watching him just deal with one case after another efficiently. He dispatched them efficiently as a matter of fact and law. And every time he gaveled one out, my heart sank a little deeper. Like, this is not going to go well for me. And so I'm sitting there waiting, and we're getting closer and closer to my turn, and then finally it happened. Eric Johns, please rise and approach the bench. I want to tell you, as a 17-year-old Christian kid, like, that was really real. I felt that. Like, wow, here, here we go. I'm in court. And he starts with this. Mr. Johns, I see that you dressed up for me this morning. And I thought, uh-huh. And then he follows with, if you think that impresses me, you're right. And I'm just like, I don't want to play this game. I don't know what we're, I don't know what we're doing here. This is terrible. When, when do I start my debate, you know? And then he says this, I see that you were cited for going 62 and a 55. Is that right? And I thought, I don't know if that's a trick question because it was a 45. And I don't know, how am I supposed to answer? So I'm thinking he's got the ticket in front of him. I, yes, that, that's correct. He says, I see this is your first infraction. You have a clean driving record. I bet you were hoping to come in here and get off of the ticket today, weren't you? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> then he says this, unfortunately, Eric, 55 miles per hour is the maximum speed limit in the state of California. You broke the speed limit. You broke the law. You're guilty. Pay your fine and, and register for a traffic court. You broke the law. You're guilty. There's nothing else to do here. And friends, I submit to you that that is a pretty good picture of all of our starting point with God. We broke the law, God's law. We're guilty. We might imagine the courtroom of heaven and we might walk in with our suit and our clothes of self-righteousness and our works and our efforts and whatever good attributes we think we have and we might think, well, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice gal. I'm okay. I'll be okay. I've done way more good than bad. But the matter of fact is, we're guilty. We broke the law. All of us start out guilty with God, awaiting his just punishment. I like the way C.S. Lewis has said it in Mere Christianity. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. We're guilty. But the gospel of grace tells us that God in his love and in his mercy, the God of the universe who made us and made us for himself, sent his own son to be the punishment for our sin so that forgiveness could be offered to us. 
God doesn't just overlook sin. Sin will be paid for. It'll either be paid for in Jesus Christ as your substitute, or it will be paid for yourself. That's the reality of the matter. God will practice pure justice. Either upon, he will either practice it and pay for our sins in you or in Christ. Paul says this in Romans 3, Now, apart from the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by, by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And friends, my encouragement to you this morning, my challenge to you is this. You may know that all of this has occurred. You may believe that Jesus exists. You might even believe that all of these things happen. And none of that is enough to save you from the judgment that is to come. The demons know that, they believe that, they know it absolutely. But they have not laid hold of that and appropriated it in their life through repentance and faith. And that is what we must do. The offer is there, the payment has been made, but you must repent and receive his sacrifice and apply it to your life so that God may forgive you. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to do that in closing right now. So if you're sitting here and you're going, man, I know all that to be true, but I've never entrusted myself through repentance and faith so that that would be applied, then I pray that you would do it right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I acknowledge that I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I broke your law. And you're a just God, and that sin must be paid for. Lord, thank you that you have provided one who took my place. So the penalty for my sin would be paid in Christ and that I would be forgiven. My sin transferred to him, his righteousness given to me. Lord, thank you for making me your child. Help me to live in the power of your Holy Spirit to become an imitator and a disciple of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.